Um, so for this past season, we've had people in our community go through incredible transition challenge. Um, even before this whole COVID thing started, uh, we've been uh, a, a community that's been transitioning through great discomfort. And yet, quite incredibly, we're seeing testimonies arise. And perhaps one of the most important things that we could bring out of this season is that God is becoming more and more real to us. And let me explain. Um, Often when we are very dependent on programs, on meeting, on habit, on routine, and there's certain things that become, you know, a crutch in our uh, spiritual walk, often we equate those things to, yeah, this is my relationship with the Lord. But this is such an interesting season where we are, weaned from these things and we actually get to see what is lying underneath. And so I've been challenged the last season, you know, as a pastor, and maybe I'm speaking a bit more personally, um, to wean away from this idea that this community cannot flourish without us meeting together on Sundays, without us being like intimately involved in one another's lives. Like we get to see each other in person. We get to catch up with people every week. And so for me, even as a pastor, I am learning what it means to hand people over to the Lord. Like this is his community. This is his church. And whether or not we get to see each other in person, this is a season where we get to savor just how real and just how tangible God's presence is. So for all of us who are tuning in online, I want to encourage you and perhaps challenge you with this question. You know, today, you know, it's a beautiful, gorgeous day outside, wherever it is that you're tuning in. Do you feel like the presence of the Lord is there with you just as much as if you were sitting in a full sanctuary hearing people worshiping right next to you. Is he just as real, just as tangible, just as involved and relevant in your life as if you were sitting in a full sanctuary right now? Is this spirit just as present right now as he probably will be the first Sunday that we get to meet together. And this is one of those rare moments where we get to test that. We get to hit the brakes just for a moment and ask ourselves, all right, so if this is not about a physical gathering, and this is not about how many people are in a room, this is not about, you know, good sound and good music and ambiance, and if this, if this is not what it's about... And if this is truly about a living, breathing God that is intimately involved with my life and he is alive in me, if this is what it's about, if this is what my faith is about, then I should be able to feel him now. I should be able to experience him and taste him and see him now. Not just some future day when all, you know, circumstances will line up for me to, you know, for me to ideally meet him. But even right now, we get to taste and see that he is good. And just as a quick backstory to this, um, last week we heard Pastor David preaching on Psalm 27. And, you know, he kind of jokingly said that, you know, uh, you know, I can preach about it every day for the rest of my life and I would still be very happy. Um, it is one of, you know, those, uh, passages of scripture that really defines my faith and defines my journey with the Lord. 
And after hearing him preach that last week, I was challenged to take some time, carve out some, some time this past week, you know, just to sit still, still, uh, sit still before the Lord, no background music, no mood lighting, no, none of that. And just sit still before the Lord and have an honest conversation. And I began to ask him, you know, is my heart still there? Is my heart still in that same place? where there's so many things that I could want, so many things that I could desire at this moment. And a lot of these things are good. I want our community to flourish. I want us to make it through stronger and better than ever before. I want to be a good pastor. I want to be true to my calling. There's all these things. I want to be supportive to different families in our community. There's so many good things that I could yearn for and long for in this season. And yet, when push comes to shove, And when the rubber meets the road, is my life still about that one thing? And so I had a really, really honest, heartfelt conversation with the Lord. Without any music, without any, you know, distraction. I just sat before the Lord. And I had this conversation with him where I honestly gave him my heart. And I said, God, you know, as long... As much as I love being a pastor, and I wouldn't trade this for the world, you know, even though we've been through hard seasons, I wouldn't trade this for the world. This is what I know I'm called to do. I'm exactly where I feel like he's led me to be. And yet, this is not what I live for. This is not, this is not my non-negotiable, actually. If anything happened, and if I were to have to step down from, you know, being a pastor, if we had to shut down our church, if, you know, finances got to a point where we had to, you know, change things around, like if any of those situations happened and this thing that I love so much, I love pastoring, I love being a part of this community, but if that was to fall through and if I was to lose that, would I still be fully content and fully satisfied in God? If we would, were to never meet in person again, you know, would I still be fully satisfied in God? If I didn't get to do this full time, would I still be fully satisfied in God? And I had this really, really honest conversation with the Lord. And there's been landmark moments in my spiritual walk where I've had these conversations where it's something kind of, Good, but painful to lay down before the Lord. And I've had to have this conversation with him where I've said, my heart has not changed. I'm still in this, not for a sense of calling or a profession or, you know, a career. I'm not in this for any of that. You know, even if church was to do great, even if we were to plant 10 church plants, you know, Like, even if we were doing great and successful by worldly standards, that wouldn't be what I'm doing this for. And so just this past week, I had a really, really sweet time with the Lord where I went through a list of even ifs, you know, even if I was to lose my health, even if I was to lose my job, even if I was to lose someone in my family, even if we never go back to normal, quote unquote, normal, even if, and these were all questions that I had to ask myself and questions that I had to process with the Lord through prayer and through worship. 
And so I was just so blessed by this opportunity that Pastor David gave us in preaching from Psalm 27, because that's basically what it is. Even when I'm surrounded by enemies, even when it's not the ideal situation, even when the conditions around me make me want to run to other things. There's so many things that I could have asked. If I had written this Psalm, I would have said not one thing I ask of the Lord. It's like 10 things I ask of the Lord. I want financial provision. I want good community. I want to not have to feel this way. I want comfort. You know, there's all these different things I would have asked for the Lord. And yet David, uh, both pastor David and King David, um, both of them, you know, are very unapologetic about it. And they say, it's only one thing that I ask of the Lord, even in this situation. And that is that I would dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. And that is not contingent on whether we meet in person or not. Although in person would be great. Are we still dwelling in the house of the Lord? All the days of my life, basically today as well. Today is one of those days of all the days of my life, right? Are we still dwelling in his house? All the days of our lives, are we still gazing upon the beauty of the Lord and seeking him in his temple? Is he our hiding place? Is he our refuge? Is he our go-to that we run to when we feel like we are in danger? Is he our light and is he our salvation? Is he the stronghold of our lives? And these are just such important questions for us to ask ourselves during this season. This is what it means to wait upon the Lord and this is what it means to seek his face. When everything around us would have us look elsewhere. And so I just felt like for today, I just wanted us to delve back into Psalm 27. So if you have your Bibles with you or your phones with you, I wanted to ask you to open up to Psalm 27. I'm going to be reading from the NIV. So if if you're going through your phone... You can look up the NIV version. Some people ask me why I use the NIV. Um, It's for no other reason other than sentimental reasons. I just love the NIV. (laughs) The ESV is very good and very accurate and great for um, study. But it's somewhat awkwardly phrased sometimes. So I, I just have a... I have an attachment to my NIV 84, so please humor me. Um, We're going to read through Psalm 27, and we're going to read it really, really slowly all together. I'm not going to provide slides for for us for this section, but I want us to read it all together really nice and slow, starting from verse 1 all the way to verse 14. And it reads, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evil men advance against me to devour my flesh, when my enemies and my foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. The war break out against me. Even then, I will be confident. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For in the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his tabernacle and set me high upon a rock. Then my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. 
At his tabernacle will I sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. Hear my voice when I call, O Lord. Be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says of you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, O God, my Savior. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not turn me over to the desire of my foes, for false witnesses rise up against me, breathing out violence. I am still confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. This is such a scripture for this time. It's such a perfect passage of scripture for us to meditate on through this season. Are we still confident that we will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living? Are we still waiting upon the Lord? Are we still strong? Are we still taking heart? Are we waiting upon him? Is he our light and our salvation? Is he the stronghold of our lives? Even when we are surrounded by enemies, are we still confident? And are we still asking simply for the one thing? I wanted to just highlight three different things about this passage in addition to what Pastor David already preached on last week. And perhaps these might sound a bit obvious to us, but I just wanted to highlight it in order for us to take it back into our prayer closets this week and actually like really ruminate on it and meditate on it and kind of turn it over in our minds and see how the Lord speaks through it. The first thing, The first thing is that this entire psalm, it is in the first person. It is written in the first person, not because it's supposed to be something that we only experience as a corporate body. This isn't just something that we experience when everybody around us is excited. You know, everybody around us is worshiping at the top of our lungs. It is something for us to experience in the first person as well. So this is a good news, hopefully, for you today. And it is that this psalm is not just for a certain kind of Christian. It's not just for those people who love to pray. It's not just for those people who have been, you know, Christians for X amount of years. It's not just for the super Christian But it is for you today. It is written in the first person because it was supposed to be understood and professed and confessed and worshipped before the Lord in the first person. So here's my question for you. Have you ever experienced a holy dissatisfaction 
And I'm not saying like a spirit of comparison where you look over to someone else who you deem to be quote unquote holier than you. And you're like, oh man, man, it must rock to be them. You know, not that, but a holy dissatisfaction. This suspicion that you have somewhere deep inside your heart that there must be more to this. If this word is true, if this testimony is true, then it means that I should be able to have the same access to this breathing and living God, the same access that Moses had, the same access, if not more, honestly, as, as New Testament believers, the same access that, you know, prophet Isaiah had, that Jeremiah had, that Ezekiel had, the same access that Peter, James, John had, Paul had. We have the same Holy Spirit alive in us. We are worshiping the same exact God. It's not like they're worshiping a very particular God and we're just worshiping a different God. No, it's the same God and it's the same Holy Spirit alive in us. And so when you experience this holy dissatisfaction of, I want to taste more. I want to know more. I want to know for myself. I actually want to see God working in my life. I actually want to see breakthrough in my life. I want to see God intervening in my circumstances. That is a good thing. That is a holy dissatisfaction that is birthed from the Holy Spirit. And that is supposed to help us push against apathy and indifference and just a sense of stagnancy in our, in our, um, in our, in our worship and in our spiritual journey. We're supposed to feel that holy dissatisfaction. We're supposed to look at the Bible and be provoked. God, something about this psalm makes me think that this guy, David, he really knew you. He knew you in a way that I don't feel like I know you. And that's not right. Like, I want to know you the same way. I want to love you the same way. I want to be able to speak these words and mean it in the same way. I want to be able to read the psalm and say one thing I ask of the Lord, and this is what I seek. Susie, that I, that Susie may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of Susie's life. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and for Susie to seek him in his temple. This needs to be my confession. This needs to be my spiritual walk. This needs to be my experience. And if I'm not experiencing that, there should be something in me that says there has to be more. There has to be more. I need to be wholly satisfied in him and yet know that there is more for me to taste and see. And so that is hopefully good news for all of us that this psalm is written in the first person for us to experience also in the first person. Let me ask you a question. If you are a a relatively new believer, someone who perhaps hasn't walked with the Lord for very long and you look around you and you, there's, Everybody has that person in their lives, right? When, when you look around, and you're like, like something about them is different. Like they know the Lord. Like I know the Lord, but they like, no, no, the Lord, you know, like they've been through stuff together. Like they've walked through thick and thin. Like they, they, their relationship has been tested and tried and true. Like something about these people, it jars you out of apathy and it jars you out of like, oh, well, I guess it's going to be it for the rest of my life. It kind of disrupts that thinking and it makes you long for more. Not in a way that it's like filled with comparison and condemnation. Like, man, I'm not measuring up to somebody else in a sense of holy dissatisfaction, of spiritual hunger, of 
if it's available to them and I have the same Holy Spirit and the veil is torn for me as well, then I have full access into that very same revelation, into that very same walk and experience with the Lord. I want that for myself. You know, in the words of Habakkuk, uh, this is, you know, what he prayed over the people of Israel in Habakkuk uh, chapter three, verse two. He says, Lord, I've heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, O Lord. So theoretically, hypothetically speaking, like I've seen it, I've heard about it, I've read about it. That's really great. I have all the theory, I have all the mechanics, I have all the theology in my mind. And then he continues on to say, renew them in our day. It's not enough for me to to just have heard about your fame. I want to know your fame. It's not just enough for me to be in awe of your deeds of what you did for somebody else. No, I want you to renew that in our day, in my day. I want to stand in awe of your deeds in my life today. So he says, oh Lord, I've heard of your fame. I stand in awe of your deeds, oh Lord. Renew them in our day, in our time, in our generation. Now, today, in our time, make them known in wrath Remember mercy. And perhaps this is a wake up call for us, you know, to be like, maybe this is a time for us to call upon the Lord and ask him, is this a time for us to not just hear of his fame, but actually taste and see, experience it for ourselves. Because we're in a, we're in a time where perhaps we can't look to all the different places that we look to for comfort, for reassurance, for, you know, you're doing the right thing or you're going the right way. We can't just as readily turn to these things as we have in the past. And now it's a time for us to come before the Lord and grab our own Bibles and go into our own prayer closets and come before him and ask him. Okay, all these things that I'm reading through right now, uh, many of us are going through our, our Bible reading, you know, reading in a year. All these things that you're reading, are you reading it like a history lesson or are you reading it with a sense of holy dissatisfaction? Like he is able to save peoples. He's able to make kings rise and fall. He's able to intervene in supernatural ways. He's able to speak to fallen man. Like all these things that we read about, it should stir in us a hunger and a desire to see it being renewed in our day. In our time, Lord, make them known. Not just in Jeremiah's time, not just in the time of King David, not just in the time of King Saul. Like today, now, I want to taste and see that this is for real, that you are for real. And so this is my first exhortation for us today. Psalm 27 was written in the first person for us to taste and see and experience in the first person. Now, I understand when we tend to enthrone uh, our experience and especially our personal experience above the truth of God. But this is my encouragement for you today. The truth of God and our personal experience, they have to line up. It's not just, it's either theory or it's personal experience. We actually have to taste and see that the Lord is good, but we also need to know the truth that is written in the Bible. And so for us to experience the fullness 
of God, we need to understand God's word as well. And that's why we made such a push, especially this year, for us to go deep into the word, for us to be confronted by the entirety of the counsel of the word of God, not just bits and pieces that encourage us, not just bits and pieces that we always go to, but the entirety of human history, the entirety of God's history. Read it all the way through. Be uncomfortable in times that we need to be uncomfortable and really begin to cry out, God, I've heard of your fame. I've read about your deeds. Renew it in our day. Now, second thing that I want us uh, to meditate on today as we're thinking through Psalm 27. Second thing is that adversity is actually not the exception, but adversity is the perfect context for us to live out this reality of the one thing. It's not when we wait for the perfect conditions, when we finally have our act together, when we finally have time, when we finally are able to launch an initiative or a program, when we finally have, you know, the, the mental space and mental, uh, you know, capacity for us to say, okay, this is an opportunity for growth. No, adversity, adversity, when things feel like they're out of your control, when you feel like you're surrounded by circumstances that are completely out of your control, that is the perfect context for you to experience this reality of God being all sufficient. This is the perfect context. And perhaps today for us, this is the perfect context for us to experience just how true Psalm 27 is. Maybe we don't read it as, you know, when evil men advance against me to devour my flesh, when my enemies and my foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege, maybe we don't read it that way. Maybe our confession will be when I lose my job. You know, when my family's in danger, when all the plans that I had for this year, they fall through. When all the people that I thought I could count on, they fail me. When, you know, somebody that I love dearly is going through a hard time. When these things are happening, even then will I be confident. And even then will I cry out for one thing. Even then. So I want us as a community, especially to shift out of this idea of like, oh man, like it's, things are hard and you know, everything's kind of like, like, let's finally get back to normal so we can actually grow then. No, like the, the time for growth is now. The time for this confession is now when things seem like they're out of our control, when things are not ideal, this is a perfect moment, the perfect context for us to experience the fullness of God, to come before him without any distractions, without any crutches, come before him and cry out for the one thing. And lastly, for those of you who perhaps, you know, feel like this season has unearthed more idols than it did like sincerity of heart, which has been my case, right? Hopefully this is an encouragement for you. Competing idolatry is a perfect stage and backdrop for us to ask for the one thing. You know, in Song of Songs, chapter 2, verse 3, it says, Like an apple tree among the trees of the forest is my beloved among the young men. I delight to sit in his shade, and his fruit is sweet to my taste. There's something about having a choice. There's something about having all these different alternatives. There's so many places that we could run to during this time. Many of us have found ourselves, you know, binging on Netflix. Many of us have found ourselves binging on 
I don't know, like food. I've been stress eating a lot this past week. I mean, this, this past two months, not, not just this past week. Um, there's so many places that we could run to and there's all these different and honestly, sometimes easier alternatives, easier alternatives to kind of shut off our brain, to think happy thoughts, to escape somewhere far away from COVID, somewhere far away from pandemic, somewhere far away from any of these things. It's so much easier. And when we have these alternatives, it is then that we get to choose God. If he's the only alternative, it's not really a choice, is it? It's like default, like process of elimination. But for us, when we feel like there's so many other places that we could go to, so many things that we could be doing with our time, so many different easier escapes, it is then that we get to choose God. And that is a voluntary choice. It is a free will offering. It is something that is pleasing to the Lord. It's something that blesses his heart. Let me give you, this is a bit, very bad example, okay? But imagine you're in a deserted island. There's only one person that's the opposite gender as you. That's, you know, like if you are looking for a partner for life, and that's the one choice you have, it's not a choice. The choice has been made for you. You know, that's not much of a choice. So when you say, yeah, I love you. See, I love you, but you know, I had no choice. (laughs) I love you, but there could have been something better out there for me. Now, if you were to imagine different alternatives, you know, out of a, you know, just like uh, song of songs, chapter two, verse three says like, there are many young men, you know, many, a bountiful, I I don't even know what that would feel like. Um, like abounding, you know, numbers and hordes of young men. And among them, you see this one. And he is like an apple tree among the rest of the trees. And that is the person that you choose to delight in and sit in his shade. And his fruit is sweet to your taste. That is quite something different. Because you have a choice. Because there's so many different alternatives. And because you have to say no to different things in order to say yes to this one thing. And so I would venture to say that competing idolatry is a perfect stage, the perfect backdrop to develop this one thing cry in our lives. Not when we just have no other choice. And so this is what I believe. Psalm 27 verse 4, I believe that it is a setup. That right now we're living through the perfect conditions for a season of personal revival. You have no corporate revival to bank on. You cannot ride on someone else's faith or passion or zeal. It has to be you and the Lord. You have to deal with your idols. You have to do it in the midst of adversity. And you need to develop this holy dissatisfaction of, I want to experience that for myself. It's not enough just for a church to go through a revival. It's not enough for my house church to go through a revival, but I want it for myself. I believe right now is a perfect condition. It's a perfect setup for a season of personal revival. This is a time when we can't just wait for our weekly dose of, you know, like, ah, oh, Sundays, you know, like one Sunday comes, I'm going to be like on good terms with the Lord. One Sunday comes, I'm going to be able to connect with the Lord. No, 
It is right now because we cannot meet in person that we can ask ourselves that question. Questions of what do I actually believe in? What is the church? What am I waiting for? Do I know God for myself like that? All these different questions that I hope have been popping up in your personal walk as we haven't been able to meet. And out of that, perhaps that's not our starting point, but I'm praying that it's our end point. In this situation, can we, with honesty, come to the place where we say, one thing I ask of the Lord, and this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and seek him in his temple. Now, I'm going to end with this. Just uh, a few weeks ago, uh, I saw uh, an article posted. uh, I believe it was through Gospel Coalition. And it was uh, on April 7th. And it reads this way. It's titled, Coronavirus Could Kill Consumer Christianity. Coronavirus Could Kill Consumer Christianity. And it is such a well-written article that highlights three different ways in which this global situation that we have right now is by default hitting the brakes on the trajectory that the church was on, especially the Western church. And we have to include ourselves in there. The first reason why coronavirus could probably be the best thing that's happened to the church in a long time, it is, number one, it's stripping the church of excess. It strips the church of excess. It reads, coronavirus has rapidly taken away the excesses of the church. All the bells and whistles, all the nice-to-haves we've come to see as must-haves. What remains are bare essentials. Jesus, the word, community, prayer, singing. And it reads on to say, what if God and his strange providence is downshifting the American church into a mode of simplicity, stripped of non-essentials, renewed in its fundamental identity as a people of God. Perhaps this is our opportunity. Second way in which the situation could kill consumer Christianity. It's blowing up the notion of Sunday-only faith. And it reads, in a season when the Sunday experience has become drastically reduced to essentially a YouTube video or Zoom meeting, Christians are forced to consider what faith looks like when going to church, quote-unquote, isn't a part of it. This crisis is a great opportunity for believers to think afresh about what it means to be distinctly Christian every day of the week, in every aspect of life. What does it look like to be noticeably Christian in a world where the previously most conspicuous thing about faith identity, going to church, is gone? And so this article is saying, The one thing that you felt like set you apart as a Christian is that you get to go to your workplace. And when they ask you, what did you do in the weekend? You say, yeah, I went to church. You know, that's what sets you apart as a Christian. But now that we can't even do that, 
What is going to set you apart as a Christian? Is it going to be something more than just, I went to church. I went to a location. I attended a service. I went through a one and a half hour program. And lastly, this article talks about this situation right now. It challenges Christians to give without getting. And it reads, this moment is an opportunity for true, faithful generosity for that to be tested. Christians should keep giving even as economic conditions worsen, job, uh, job losses rise, and hoarding instincts kick in. The generosity of God's people for one another will be even more crucial in the days ahead. And this is something hard for us to swallow. I think for us here in Korea, we've actually bypassed some of the more dramatic and more immediate effects of what this is having in the, entirety, in the entire world. I was looking at stats yesterday, just in America, there's over 60,000 deaths just from the last six weeks, over 60,000 deaths. What if one of those 60,000 people had been someone in my family? What if one of those 60,000 people had been me? What if one of those 60,000 people would have been somebody in our community? Would our understanding and our perspective of what's going on globally, would that change? I read some staggering statistics about the rates of unemployment right now. It's nearing 10% in the States. So right now, out of a population of 350 million, there's just unemployment claims that were submitted. So like there's a bunch of people that haven't been able to submit it because systems crash, but there's already over 30 million, over 30 million people in the last six weeks that have lost their jobs. What if I had been one of those 30 million, which statistically is very easy to fall into. It means for every 10 people, one person that you know would have lost their job. So in that moment, if I were in that place, would I still be able to trust that God provides, to still give generously, to still, you know, like fight against every insect to become tight-fisted and controlling and, you know, withholding of whatever blessing and provision God has given me in this season because I feel like that will be what saves me. And this is not something that I say very lightly. I feel like if I were in those people's shoes, I can't say that I would be like, well, the Lord provides and here's, you know, my wealth. I don't know if I would do that. I honestly don't know. I would have to be in that situation to really know what I would do. And yet this is going to be a test for the church. Is it only when you feel like you're getting quote unquote, your money's worth from your Sunday experience that you choose to be giving now, you know, to, to temper that, that statement, I, I'm really grateful and thankful for this community that in the last few weeks has displayed so much generosity. Every time we've had a love offering, you know, every time we've, you know, you know, people continue to tithe. But then on top of that, every time that we've had a love offering towards Nanomi or towards uh, Hope Bridge, uh, every time we've given people an opportunity to give, we haven't seen people tight-fisted and clenching, you know, and like holding on to their wealth, but people who know that God has given them much. And so now it's their turn, their turn to give and give to people who won't give back to them. And so I've been so blessed and so humbled by the testimony of this church. I've been just, you know, like just so moved and so touched by it. And I know that God all the more feels that as well. 
Now, I just want to end with this. There was, there's a testimony of a woman who lived in the 20th century during World War II. And her name is Corrie Ten Boom. And she was a Dutch woman who, in the midst of the Holocaust, uh, she risked her life in order, you know, she risked her safety and her life and the life of her family as well in order to help those who were being sent off to concentration camps. And she had nothing to gain from it. You know, it was just people who had a different religion, you know, from her. People that wouldn't be able to pay her back. People that would actually endanger her well-being. And yet it was this woman who risked her life and actually ended up going to a concentration camp because of it. Her name is Corrie Ten Boom. And this is what she wrote. She wrote, you may never know Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. This was in a situation where she didn't have to risk it all. She didn't have to end up with only Jesus. And yet she chose to do so in order, in the, in order for her to be a witness of God's goodness and God's grace in a moment where it was imperative for that hope, for that safety, and for that protection, that provision to be granted to those who weren't given it. So this is what she said. You may never know Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. Could we say this if we saw, like she did, if we saw our sister lose her life? If we saw ourselves stripped from everything that we thought was safe, everything that we thought we rightfully deserved, we voluntarily gave that up in order to serve someone else. Now, let me add something to this. I'm going to add a tag on to this. You may never know Jesus is all you need until Jesus is all you have. Let me add this, though. Although, ideally, I'd rather not have to learn that lesson that way. That's what I believe. Ideally, I shouldn't have to get to the place where everything in my life is stripped away for me to get to that one thing I ask of the Lord moment. I shouldn't have to see my life crumble in order for me to cry out to the Lord. Ideally, I would love to give this to God, this life, this breath, this allegiance, this affection, this worship. I'd love to give it to the Lord voluntarily, even when things are not taken away from me, when I have a choice. And perhaps this is where we are today. Few people, you know, that we know here in Korea and in our community are going through a situation where everything has been stripped away from them. So this is my encouragement for us today. Are we still choosing the one thing among so many other things? This is what I feel like the Lord is doing in this season. You know, this is a season for us not to just breathe a sigh of relief and move on with life and just put the past behind us. I feel like this is a season for us to fill our lamps with oil. This is a season when we store up for the seven-year famine. This is a season when we dig our wells. This is our season when we dig down our roots. This is a season that is grace and is mercy and is respite. And it is unmerited in many ways. Many people in the world, they can't just be sitting at home today, just waiting for you know, the storm to pass. We, are, we have been given an opportunity for us, a time, a, a, a moment, a hiatus 
in the midst of everything that is happening, we're being given an opportunity in God's divine providence and in his mercy to prepare, to set things right, to set a priority straight, to deal with the Lord, to deal with our idols, and to begin to cry out to see God more tangibly at work in our lives.